So this is the first in a series of lectures which are about uh, using science fiction, which I define fairly loosely, as a way of thinking about human nature, about what, if anything, makes us human. And the idea for the series really started with Octavia Butler, one of my favourite SF writers, um, who said that she would um, very often be asked uh, when she gave a talk about her work, well, what use is science fiction? And this was particularly something that African-Americans would ask her um, when she gave a talk. And this is what she would say in reply. What good is science fiction's thinking about the present, the future, and the past? What good is its tendency to warn or to consider alternative ways of thinking and doing? What good is its examination of the possible effects of science and technology or social organization and political direction? At its best, Science fiction stimulates imagination and creativity. It gets reader and writer off the beaten track, off the narrow, narrow footpath of what everyone is saying, doing, thinking, whoever everyone happens to be this year. And what good is all this to black people? And you know, to which I would also want to add, well, what good is this to anyone? I would think it's self-evidently very useful to everybody to think about these things. I really like this answer, and I quote it whenever people ask me why I waste my time reading science fiction, watching it, talking about it, and so on. And that question that I really want to focus on is who everyone happens to be. That notion of identity and what defines people as being part of an in-group. Um, and the other question that, that kind of went through my head when I was thinking about this is something that a student once asked me. So I was teaching in America about 10 years ago, and I was teaching a class on uh, science and imperialism, and we got into a discussion about Islamophobia and whether 9-11 had made things worse. And uh, one of the white students in the class said, well, we were blown up. And the student sitting next to her, who was American, but whose family came from the Indian subcontinent, just looked at her and said, who is this we? And it led to, as you can imagine, quite a fraught but actually very interesting conversation about who is this we? Who, whenever we use the term, we are instinctively and unconsciously usually defining some people as in a group and some people as outside the group. And I think that's one of the other themes that I think Butler's quote touches on, which I want to explore. Because when we think about what human is, what makes people human, we usually have done it, historically speaking, and by we in this context, I tend to think I mean old white guys like me who have dominated science traditionally, uh, have offered a set of definitions which I want to kind of try and critique with the help of science fiction. What is not human? How do we define human in opposition? So in later lectures, we're going to be looking at robots and aliens who are kind of obviously alternatives, mirrors in which we might see ourselves. We're going to look at women who have often actually been argued to be less than human by male writers because they are supposedly less rational. And one of the ways of defining human is more rational, the rational animal and so on. So there are all kinds of complicated issues around that, which we'll come back to in later ones. But I'm going to start with apes because they seem like a natural place to start. For a long, long time, we've thought of them as being very like us, but not quite. And I'm going to start by going to the movies and looking at three movies where apes or ape-like creatures, and again, I'm going to be fast and loose with apes as I am with science fiction here. Three movies that use apes in different ways to think about how they might tell us something about how the science of human nature has changed. So we'll start with Hollywood's first ape star, 
um, the original King Kong. If you've never seen this, one thing I should forewarn you of now is if you haven't seen the movies and read the books and so on, spoiler alert, okay, I'm going to ruin nearly all of them along the way, so sorry, you will flee now if you don't want to know how they turn out. Um, but the original King Kong is so famous that it, he's really iconic. I mean, the image of Kong cl clinging to the Empire State Building, we all recognize that. We know what that is, even if we've never actually seen the original, which I strongly recommend. Um, and, but I want to think a little bit about what does King Kong mean? Why is that image so iconic? And why have there been so many remakes of this film? Uh, one of the things that makes the original one famous is, is Faye Ray, who plays the main female character called Anne Darrow, um, and she screams a lot. And she really, really screams a lot in the film. It's one of the ways she got the part. Um, and the film is telling us how we're supposed to film. We're supposed to be terrified. She's terrified of Kong. We're all supposed to be terrified. When we meet the indigenous people on the island where Kong lives, they're all terrified. This fear is set up in a very um, carefully constructed way through the way the film is told. Um, and the, because the audience shares that fear, we're then surprised by the film. So there are several moments when we first see Kong, he's this brutal giant monster, uh, and he snatches her up, and we think the worst is about to happen, possibly worse than we can imagine is about to happen. Um, but in fact, Kong turns out to be surprisingly gentle. He protects her when he's attacked by a T-Rex, uh, and he puts her down gently, and in the climactic scene of the film, he actually lays her gently down on the Empire State Building so he can make his last stand against the aeroplanes. And again, spoiler alert, he dies heroically. But we actually really feel sorry for him. So the monster has actually become a kind of figure of pity. But without the initial fear, we don't get the surprise. Uh, and that's really quite important. So the ape has to be set up in that kind of way to work in the film. Now, if we jump forward a long way into the 1960s and think about Kubrick's famous film, 2001, um, it begins with a sequence called The Dawn of Man, which is kind of weirdly out of place in the film, but really crucial to the story that unfolds. So what we see is a group of early ancestors of humans who look very ape-like. They're really hominids, they're early precursors of humans, but the notion that the ape is a bridge between us and, and our pre-human history is a crucial reason why we think about apes. Um, and they're living a very tough life on the African savanna. There's a drought, they're starving and so on. And one of them, after they're exposed to this giant black monolith, uh, has this idea that you can pick up a bone and you can use it as a weapon. And he smashes the skull of a dead animal and then he thinks, oh, I could do this to a live animal. And he does. Um, and it ends with the, uh, the group that are at the center of the story um, uh, fighting off another rival group and with the lead ape in the first group or the hominid in the first group killing the leader of the other group. And he finishes with this victorious kind of ha, 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 throws his bone up in the air. We follow the bone up into the air and we cut to a spaceship. So there's this extraordinary moment where the whole of human history is predicated on this moment of extraordinary violence at the beginning. So again, apes are not looking terribly good in terms of what they look as, how they look as like a contrast. But if we come up much more recently and we look at the, more re the most recent remakes of the Planet of the Apes movies, and I'll talk about the originals in a minute, they are much more sympathetic to the apes. Um, in fact, by the end of the, the most recent one, the Battle for the Planet of the Apes, every single human being in the audience is rooting for the apes over the humans. The humans get more and more unsympathetic as the films unfold. And there are lots of reasons for that. I'm going to talk about a couple, but one is just that the technology has moved on such a long way that they have very human-like expressions. And Andy Serkis, who plays the leader of the apes, sees a really has an extraordinary range of facial expressions. He's the first kind of motion capture movie star. Um, and uh, it, it allows you to enter into what they're thinking and get a sympathy for them, which wasn't possible with the earlier ones. So there's a lot going on, but there's more to it than just technological change, I think. 
So let's think about evolution of apes and that relationship between us and them. This is a, a picture that captures some of the confusion that Europeans had about apes uh, in the early modern period. There were supposedly many species. Most Europeans had never seen them. They were relying on second, third-hand accounts. They weren't sure how many species there were, whether they were kinds of humans. Some of these are very clearly apes. Some look much more like humans. Some look like nothing you can imagine. Uh, and they had all kinds of names, pongos and or orangutans, and these were all used interchangeably, and they weren't uh, distinguished from one another. But they have a great grip on the public imagination. Um, and then the great question, which is asked by this Benjamin Disraeli here, British Prime Minister in 1864, comments in Parliament. What is the question now placed before society with a glib assurance, the most astounding? The question is this, is man an ape or an angel? My Lord, I am on the side of the angels. Uh, a source of much amusement. It's a famous cartoon from Punch of Disraeli making this. Incidentally, just as an aside, you'll see a lot of Victorian cartoons of Disraeli which emphasize certain characteristics about him. He's often shown as slightly effeminate. He's always shown as rather exotic, dressing up in fancy clothes. He dresses up as Aladdin, the genie, in, uh, with, a, with a lamp in one of these famous cartoons. This is all a code, and it's a code Victorians would have understand. It's a way of saying he's Jewish. Um, and so the anti-Semitism is another way of othering people, of making an inside and an outside group, which is rumbling along in the background. But that would take me so far off the track that I'm going to leave it hanging there. Is man an ape or an angel? Now, why is that the big question in Victorian society? Well, there's an obvious answer. And the obvious answer is, of course, our old mate, Mr. Darwin, about whom I was rabbiting on last year. So if you missed those, lucky you, they're online if you want to watch them. Um, now, the origin of species comes out in 1859. So the timing, 1859, 1864, looks kind of indicative. But Darwin actually says almost nothing about human evolution in the origin of species. One single sentence. Light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history once my views are accepted. Apes are barely mentioned in the book, and there's no linking of humans to apes at all. So it's not obvious that you would start to be thinking about this question in relation to apes because of Darwin. What actually prompts it is a man called Paul Bologna de Chaillou, who is an explorer and a hunter and publishes this book in 1861, so not long after Darwin, Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa, which is really the first detailed account that reaches English-speaking audiences of gorillas. And this is the frontispiece to his book. Now, Deschamps is a complicated character who has had a relaxed attitude to the truth, uh, and a lot of his book is borrowed from other sources and embroidered in various ways, but it's an absolute sensation. This book sells 10,000 copies in England alone in its first year, and he really becomes a celebrity, and there's a whole kind of guerrilla sensation on the back of this. And what really captures people's imagination is this image of brutality. Uh, this is the first beginning to sort out the differences between the different apes, and the gorilla is the biggest, and according to Shishai, the fiercest and the most dangerous. The gorilla, an animal scarce known to the civilized world and which no white man before had hunted, he claimed. Um, and so this story is full of exciting uh, chase scenes and so on. The first time he saw a gorilla's footprints, his heart beat till I feared its loud pulsations would alarm the gorilla. And my feelings were really excited to a painful degree. So it's very hyper in the whole way it tells the story. And it really captures the public's imagination. But that picture of the ape is actually quite new. And it's a very 19th century picture. And if you go back earlier, you find a much more diverse and unexpected range of views. So if we have a look at Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 
he actually talks about apes, orangs he uses the term, but he's talking about apes generally because, as I say, the difference between the species hasn't been sorted. Um, and very unexpectedly, he actually that the orangutan is an unspoiled human. They're not ancestors of ours, but they're actually, they're us in some important sense. And they're as yet uncorrupted by civilization. And it's actually the civilized people of Europe who so casually assume that we are superior, this is what Rousseau is attacking, who are in fact the degenerate ones. This is Rousseau's from his discourse on the origins of inequality. We had only fashioned a steeper path of decline from our natural state. We had bred livestock to satisfy our artificial needs and had thereby made our senses still more dull and our constitutions more frail. So that in modern society, we're hardly any longer even animals of a certain degenerate kind, but only pets or prey, broken in by ourselves, weak, docile, fattened, and fleeced. So civilization is not good for you. And he compares uh, Europeans, his fellow Europeans, not only with apes, but with other varieties of human being living in supposedly primitive, barbarous, backward, savage states. These are the kinds of adjectives that would have been used. He points out they seem healthier than us, they seem fitter than us, they seem freer than us, um, they seem to have better eyesight and uh, they're stronger. They're actually a big contrast. Um, and all of that, uh, of course, is drawn on these travelers' tales. This is actually the origin of the first picture, the, the pongo that I showed you in the first one is drawn from this picture of an orang um, by Nicholas Tulpa, Dutch anatomist. Um, Rousseau is relying on these second-hand accounts. And what's interesting is that he actually hit on quite a number of interesting ideas about the orang, but, but for very odd reasons. So long after uh, Rousseau publishes Alfred Russell Wallace, who's co-discoverer of natural selection with Darwin, in a book about the Malay archipelago, confirmed that orangutans are not territorial. Um, and uh, Rousseau had, put, had uh, said that, he had assumed that, but only because it was a preconception of his that private property is one of the sins of civilization that makes us weak and aggressive and degenerate. So he hit on the right answer, as he did in a number of cases with orangs, because he had philosophical preconceptions, not because he actually knew anything about orangs. So you'll sometimes find it claimed that um, Rousseau was an evolutionist and he actually uh, you know, understood orangs better than what science was going to. Uh, that's really a misunderstanding completely. But this idealization of the ape is, is an interesting idea. And it would seem in many ways to embody the idea of the noble savage, which is very often linked to Rousseau. The idea that the, the state of nature for human beings, the primitive state of nature, is better than civilization. The only problem with that assumption is that Rousseau never used the term noble savage, actually, at all, anywhere in his writings. And he was actually really skeptical about the notion that you could just simplistically assume that nature is better, simple is better, primitive is better. What he's doing, I think, when he's offering the ape or the savage human being, and he doesn't really separate the two, is he's getting fellow Europeans to ask, who is this we? Who is this little narrow group where we so casually assume our superiority? Uh, what are the sources of that confidence? And we should question it. We should actually think about our standards and why we believe in them and whether there might be better standards uh, and so on. Get off the narrow footpath of what everybody happens to be believing this week. So he's practicing what I suppose we would now call was cultural relativism. It's getting you people to think outside of the frame um, of where they're, uh, what they'd been grown up believing. So uh, it's, it's a critique rather than a, a literal model, although, as we'll see, people don't always read uh, Rousseau in quite that way. 
Now, the idea that the ape might be a model for human beings is one that actually circulates quite widely in the 18th century. I've read quite a lot of these. I'll give you just one flavour because I think this is rather amazing. Nicolas-Edmé uh, Nicolas Rétif de la Béton wrote a, uh, a letter from an ape to others of his species. Lettre d'un songe aux animaux de son espèce, 1781. It was written by César of Malacca who is supposed to be the son of an ape and a local woman. Now, while I was going through my notes for this, I realized I had quite a lot of notes about sexual relationships between apes and humans, and I thought, okay, it's a family show. I think I'll just put those aside, and we'll, we'll come to, back to that another day. But, but that notion that we're that closely related that we could interbreed is actually something that gives you that sense of kinship. Um, now, this letter written by this ape appears in this book, the discovery of the Australia of the, of the Great Southland, which was then unknown, uh, by a flying man. And this is the flying suit that he made, which allowed him to fly over the equator and discover the Southland. So this is very clearly somehow in the kind of lineage of science fiction. Uh, and the, book, the letter appears as an appendix to this book. He meets Cesar somewhere in his travels, and Cesar warns uh, uh, the, against humans. They're terrible, terrible people. Apes should avoid them at all costs, and what they should never do is emulate them uh, or imitate them in any way. So it's interesting that the, the idea of a large gap, a divide between apes, and is used by some people to kind of reverse the assumptions and make it say, well, you know, who would, who would sink to the level of a human if you're already an ape? Um, now, these kinds of ideas, the idea of the nobility of the ape, of the, of the non-European non person and so on, they really get unfashionable in the 19th century, uh, where the common assumption is that non-European peoples, particularly Africans, are savage and barbaric and violent. This is a picture from the Illustrated London News, uh, which is supposed to be discovered by British soldiers during a punishment expedition against the King of Ashante, where they found the King's slaughtering place, this great mound of skulls uh, in the jungle. Uh, and this kind of image is splashed around in the media uh, to justify the imperial mission. And I think it's very easy to see how these tales of darkest Africa mesh very nicely with Deshayo's image of Africa, where the gorilla is presented as a threat uh, to people, and particularly to white people. This is one of the barriers in the way of civilization, uh, this great, big, dangerous animal. And they are very closely linked in Dushai's writing and in the writing of many other peoples with the Africans themselves. The same language is often used to describe them. Um, and some Europeans say, well, you know, the Africans are like children. They could be civilized and educated and Christianized and so on. And Dushayu makes that argument. Others would say, well, they're, they're really no better than the apes. And uh, James Hunt, the ultra-racist anthropologist whose work I talked a little bit about last year, when some people in Britain were arguing that the governor of Jamaica uh, air should be prosecuted for murdering 600 black people in putting down a, a revolt among the former slaves of Jamaica. Uh, Hunt actually said, well, I suppose the kind of people who want to prosecute him, next thing they'll be wanting to prosecute Deshayu for shooting gorillas. I mean, he makes that exact equation. They're just animals. Of course we can shoot them. Why wouldn't we? It was a really horrifying thought, but it's another kind of otherness. So let me jump on a bit um, into the 1960s, and I want to look at this book here. Robert Audrey is an American playwright, and he wrote this bestseller, a series of books, actually, about this, about human evolution. And he takes what is then state-of-the-art scientific research, repackages it in a dramatic form, and persuades a lot of people that what we have thought to be true about human origins is not. He bases his work particularly on the work of a South African paleoanthropologist called Raymond Dart. Dart is the person who finds the very first skeleton of the species we now call Australopithecines. He named Australopithecus Afri Afri um, Africanus. 
And he wrote a very famous paper in the 50s, 1953. That's going to be a future lecture series. Everything interesting happens in 1953. Um, <laughs> the predatory transition from ape to man. Dart argued that the simple thesis that man had emerged from the anthropoid background from the apes for one reason only, because he was a killer. Long ago, perhaps many millions of years ago, a line of killer apes branched off from the non-aggressive primate background. For reasons of environmental necessity, the line adopted the predatory way. For reasons of, um, uh, and for that reason, Dart was convinced that Australopithecus was not only carnivorous, but hunted using tools, weapons fashioned from bones. This may be sounding kind of vaguely familiar to you. This scene at the beginning of 2001 is directly dramatization of what Audrey has written about Dart's thesis. The story goes that um, Kubrick actually had a copy of African Genesis in his pocket while he was working on the script of this, but it's taken exactly, and it dramatizes that exact moment where there's been a long drought, and actually the novelization of the film makes this even more explicit. Long drought, water is scarce, food is scarce, and of necessity, our ancestors turned to eating meat and killing each other um, as a way of surviving this. And that using the bone as a weapon is exactly what Dart predicted. And so Audrey uh, makes this very dramatic claim. And what's really interesting is Kubrick is later attacked by the media over A Clockwork Orange in particular um, for making incredibly violent films that encourage violence. And he actually cites Audrey's work in his defense. Look, it's just human nature. The science is with me. I'm not making this stuff up. You can't blame me for the way we are. Uh, he's very, um, very clear about this link. And actually, let me just say one more thing about that, that um, Audrey explicitly blames Rousseau for many of the problems of the world. Because Rousseau has got us all believing this myth of the noble savage, of the primitive ape, that we are naturally good, and that we could just tweak the laws a bit and give people maybe you know, slightly better schooling or something, all the violence in the world would disappear. And Audrey says, you're just killing yourself. Rousseau has kidded us all. And so I think Audrey rather misreads Rousseau as offering a literal model of humanity rather than a, a, than a metaphor to get us thinking. Um, but it's interesting that... Uh, Kubrick himself, he's accused by the film reviewer of the New York Times of being a fascist or promoting fascist views of the Clockwork Orange, and he actually writes in to say, look, just because I'm not as you know, dewy-eyed as Rousseau, I'm not a fascist. <laughs> you know, kind of, he defends himself by taking... So this argument about Rousseau and the natural ape and so on has rumbled on for a long, long time. So we've got apes evolving away in the background, and we've got this image of the brutal ape still very strongly there. The 19th century kind of imperial ape created by Deshayu is still very much, I think, present in Kubrick's film. But another film comes out literally within weeks of 2001, which is one of those nice coincidences that make me happy. Um, a film called um, Planet of the Apes, which I'm sure you've all heard of, 1968. Franklin Schaffner, um, Charlton Heston, uh, really a big, big hit. Um, and it, it makes an extraordinary kind of spectacle. So the, the story, if you've not seen it, is that Charlton Heston's an astronaut. He's traveling way beyond the solar system. He, they crash on a planet where they find humans who can't speak. And they seem like the kind of classic Hollywood cavemen. They wear skins and they grunt uh, and so on. And as uh, Ch Charlton and the other astronauts are thinking, oh, we're going to be running this place in five minutes, they're attacked by a large group of gorillas on horseback carrying guns uh, who slaughter the humans, round up others. Um, and then there's a scene towards the end of this initial shocking scene where there's a pile of dead humans on the floor and the gorillas all go and stand on them and put their feet on them and one of them says, smile, and that's the first time you realise that they can speak as well, unlike the humans. So this is a very dramatic reversal of what we think of as the, the anticipated relationship between humans and other animals. And that's one of the things that gives this film uh, its extraordinary impact and it's a big hit. So um, 
it was so successful they had to make five, they made five of them originally, for four sequels to the original one. There were a couple of TV series after that, and to date there have been at least four remakes of this, including the one that I mentioned earlier. Now, not long after the film came out, uh, Mort Abrahams, who's the um, associate producer, and Arthur Jacobs, the producer, were out, and Abraham has told the story they bumped into Sammy Davis Jr. at a club. And he said, wow, Planet of the Apes, that's like the best film about black-white relations I've ever seen. And um, Abraham said that they had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> it was a film about animal rights. What was he, you know, what was he thinking? Um, but actually, what's interesting is that you know, the apes in the film, they enslave humans, they put them in cages, they force them to serve their ape masters, and they whip them when they disobey. And it was very obvious when the film came out, African-American audiences didn't have any trouble seeing this as a metaphor um, and, or an allegory for what was going on in America at the time. Uh, and it becomes very charged. I think some African-American audiences, this was kind of long overdue payback. The, the tables have been turned. For some white audiences, it's the kind of dramatization, their worst fears in the era of black power and uh, you know, the kind of more militant black nationalism that follows from the civil rights movement. But actually, the films are complicated about race. And I, I'm, I'm not going to go into them in huge detail, but the, the apes are actually divided. There are three species, the orangs, the gorillas, and the chimps. And the, uh, the gorillas are the most violent, the most physical, the legacy of King Kong, uh, and they're the, they're the army. The orangs are the kind of leaders of society. They're incredibly bureaucratic and tiresome, uh, and they uphold the traditional religion of their people, which, amongst other things, denies evolution. So there's a great courtroom scene where two of the chimps, who are the scientists, are put on trial for teaching this blasphemous doctrine of evolution, which, uh, uh, you know, as one of the, the orangs says, the proper study of ape is ape. Um, and so it's kind of full of these lovely little twists and great moments. So it's not as simplistic, you know, like the apes are the black people, the humans are the... There isn't a simple reversal going on. But it does get very interesting and very complicated over successive films as it plays with these notions of otherness. Who is this we? Who are we supposed to be sympathetic towards? So uh, the, the sequel, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, the second one, it's my least favorite, I have to say. Um, but it actually used the, the strap line in some of the adverts, can a planet long endure half human and half ape? And I think for American audiences in particular, the resonance of Lincoln's famous question, can a nation endure half slave and half free, makes the kind of racial parallels here very, very obvious indeed and they were much commented on at the time. Now, it's interesting to go back to the, the letter from a monkey, L'Otre d'un Singe, and Breton's letter César, the same name as the leader of the apes in the later movies. I'm like, that can't be a coincidence, but maybe I'm reading too much of this. Anyway, César's strongest condemnation of human beings, the reason apes should never imitate them, is because of their cruelty. Man is cruel and singularly cruel to his own kind. And to be convinced of this truth, we have only to see how he treats, apologies for the out-of-date word, Negroes. It is cruelty that passes the imagination in which he will exercise towards any of us. That is, the species that makes slaves of other members of its own species is so far beneath contempt. That's the message that is being offered here. And the ape-human gap is being used to dramatize that, I think, very effectively. 
And that is picked up again and again. So the very famous Scopes trial, which I'm sure you've heard about, where John T. Scopes is a school teacher in Dayton, Tennessee, is put on trial for violating the recently passed Butler Act, which forbids the teaching of evolution in public schools. This becomes a great kind of media festival. Uh, in fact, it's almost staged by um, the American Civil Liberties Union and the town fathers to put Dayton on the map and dramatize various issues around free speech and so on. And apes figure very prominently and repeatedly in the kind of public theater that takes over Dayton and takes over reports of this. So there are lots of ape cartoons. Um, again, one of the things I was going to talk to you about was this amazing 13-year-old socialist orator called Queen Silver, um, who actually appeared in Dayton, photographed holding hands with chimps, and she challenges William Jennings Bryan, who's one of the main uh, prosecutors or the members of the prosecution team, to a public debate on evolution. And he's too afraid to meet her publicly. And I'm like, but that would keep us here all night, so let's move straight on. The use of apes, though, this is a really interesting concept. This is a disturbing image, I warn you. Um, the monkey trial led to cartoons like this. This is the Chicago Defender, an African-American paper, and the two apes up in the tree are watching a lynch mob murdering an African-American person, and one's saying, Joe, do you believe fiends like those are descendants of ours? And the other ape is saying, no. So that unbridgeable gap uh, is, can be used to all kinds of purposes um, to dramatize relations between races uh, and species and so on. It, it, it functions on so many levels as an allegory. Now, I think it may be because of the Scopes trial, I'm just guessing here, that one of the first real ape science fiction stories appears because it comes out in 1930, which is just after Scopes. This is Claire Winger Harris. The very first woman, as far as anyone knows, to actually published in the science fiction pulp magazines under her own name. So a largely forgotten figure now, but there's been quite a lot of recent scholarship on the early pulps and the number of women who actually published and edited um, those magazines. It was a more inclusive space than you might assume. Um, and uh, you get a kind of sense of what they were like. So this is the cover of the magazine where her first story appeared. This is the kind of classic iconography of sci-fi from this period, which is still so familiar to us. Um, this is one of the typical ads in the magazine. Uh, fellows, I, uh, fellows I have trained will tell you that you too can cash in on electricity. And there's lots of these kind of do-it-yourself science-y kind of things. But there's also ads like this one, the um, masterpieces of oriental mystery. She is yours, master, sick at heart. The trembling girl shuddered at the words that delivered her to this terrible fate of the East. So you get a kind of sense. This is not exactly a female-friendly um, uh, space to be publishing in. So Harris is quite a kind of interesting um, pioneer. Um, and her story is about a scientist called Daniel Stoddart who has this idea that you could train apes to act as servants to human beings uh, and that they would take over all the dirty manual jobs that nobody else wants to do. Um, and they become an invaluable labor force. Uh, and it, when they're discussing this plan, one of the characters wonders if the stimulus of this training and giving them new things to do will actually cause them to evolve more quickly, and will they become human? And one of the other characters, the female main character of Melva, actually comments on this, that if they ever do become human, we can't have them work for us anymore. That would be slavery. So the link is made very explicitly in the story. So. Melva marries Stoddart's son, the son of the scientist. He discovers how to make the apes even more useful by making extracts of the known glands of human beings and discovering a few for himself. He was able to procure in a concentrated form the vital substance that controlled the mental growth of the race. This isn't going to work out well, I have to say. Um, 
the apes rebel. I mean, what happens in the story is kind of fascinating. The humans retreat to their big country estates and they leave the apes to do everything, including fly the planes and control the communications network. And, and, the, and the apes think, the hell with this, you know? And so they rise up, they overthrow the humans, and they briefly run the country. Um, and the, the, uh, the, the, the apes, uh, the humans manage to fight back. They bomb the capital, they murder all the ape leaders and so on, um, and they regain control. Um, but what, what's fascinating is the new human president actually wonders whether the apes will always be a threat. Perhaps he ponders they are nature's method of keeping us strong and pure, uh, that the humans will always be struggling to evolve and keep themselves on top and so on. So that notion of interspecies competition is something that you actually find very commonly in the early decades of the century, that the competition between nations, between races, is one of the things that prevents degeneration, which stops life getting too comfortable. The struggle for existence will always go on um, as we compete for empire and so on against other nations. Uh, and you can see that idea being dramatized here. Now, this is a fascinating story because it comes out 30 years before Le Planet des Songes. This is the book from which the Planet of the Apes movies are derived originally. I mean, that, her story comes out three years before King Kong. <laughs> uh, so it's really way ahead of its time. And it's interesting that there are a few other stories. There's one, at least, that I've come across. I haven't managed to track, track it down, but it talks about an ape, ape uprising. Um, but in that story, the apes learn to talk and therefore are enfranchised because they can talk. This is the first one I've ever come across, as far as I know, the first one where the ape uprising is explicitly dramatized as a slave uprising. Uh, and so it makes those kinds of metaphors, as I say, in the racially charged atmosphere, the Scottsboro boys are going to go on trial just after her story appears. So it's, it's really very of its moment, Harris's book. And if we come back to the Planet of the Apes movies, which, as I say, start from um, La Planète des Songes, and then there's this whole series of them. In the fourth film, The Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, there's a kind of great moment where the humans are being led. So, sorry, I'll fill you in briefly on what's happened. Um, in the second film, they made a big mistake. If you're planning a sequence of movies, don't do this, right? They blew up the entire world, and everybody died. Luckily, by the third film, two of the chimps from the future had gone back in time and arrived in present-day Earth. Um, and impressed everybody with their wit and, and wisdom and so on. It's, it's a, there's some very nice, funny scenes in it. Um, and the chimps then have a child, a speaking ape, called Caesar. Uh, and Caesar eventually is going to lead the rebellion. But what happens is that the, um, there's a plague which has killed all the dogs and cats. Humans start taking apes into their homes as pets. Um, and that's the beginning of the, uh, the, the apes then become increasingly important, increasingly intelligent. More and more of them speak. The humans get more and more paranoid. That's what leads to conflict. So in the scene, Breck, who's worried that ape IQs are constantly rising, they're more and more of a threat all the time, they're going to conquer humanity, he's talking to Caesar. And Caesar says, how do we differ from the dogs and cats you and your kind used to love? Why did you turn us from pets to slaves? Breck, because your kind were once our ancestors. Man was born of the ape, and there's still an ape curled up inside of every man, the beast that must be whipped into submission, the savage that has to be shackled in chains. You are the beast, Caesar. You taint us. You poison our guts. When we hate you, we're hating the dark side of ourselves. And again, you, know, you think about, particularly in the USA in the early 70s, the dark side of ourselves, the metaphor, I think is really pretty obvious. Why are the more, most recent Planet of the Apes movies so different? Why, when we have this kind of strong sense of apes as inhuman, dirty, different, other, and dangerous, um, have things flipped so severely that we're then on the side of the apes in the most recent films? Well, 
The short answer is a lot of women become primatologists during the 1970s. The very famous book by Donna Haraway, philosopher and historian. This is a book I first read when I was an undergrad, and I, I was rereading chapters of it now, and every time I read it, I see more in it. I can't begin to do justice to the sophistication and complexity of this book, but I really, really recommend it. Um, and when Audrey wrote his books, the whole science of primatology, uh, like most science, was entirely dominated by men. And in fact, Audrey celebrates the fact that this revolution in our understanding of human evolution has been brought about by three figures. Dart was one, and he actually calls them the three wild men, uh, these iconoclasts who shook up the scientific community. So it's very macho kind of science at the time. And Haraway says that as more and more women join primatology, it changes, our view of apes changes, and actually our whole view of science changes as a result. So some of these women are very, very famous. I'm sure you've all heard of Jane Goodall, pictured here, of Diane Fossey, particularly famous for her work with uh, apes, uh, with gorillas, rather, and slightly less well-known now than the other two, Burrita Galdikas, who worked with orangutans, particularly. Um, uh, they're all, interestingly, uh, supported by Louis Leakey, who's one of the big names in uh, African paleoanthropology, who, uh, one of the people who dug up some of the very important fossils of early humans and so on. And Leakey actually recruited them to do field work on living apes because he thought the way that living apes behaved would give us insights into the way that our ancestors might have behaved. So he actually sees primatology as a kind of time travel. It lets us look back into our own past. And he recruited young women, I suspect, because they were cheap, but the ostensible reason was that they weren't trained. So they weren't going to be prejudiced. They were going to look at the apes with a fresh eye and report what they actually saw, rather than just taking for granted what the previous generation had learned. And that is exactly what they did. So in the 60s, the research on primates being done was all led by men. The very few women who were involved in this were mostly graduate students. Um, and so the men studied the male apes, because male apes were assumed to be the dominant groups. In fact, the, the, the groups of apes studied in the world were all named after their alpha male. That's how the group was identified. And the assumption that the alpha male dominated the group uh, violently saw off challengers and then fathered most of the offspring in the next generation was taken for granted uh, within primatology. The few women who worked on this were left to study what the mothers and infants were doing and how uh, childcare worked in ape society. Almost nobody took any interest in adult female chimps unless they were either you know, breastfeeding or being mated with. And the interactions between females were not being studied at all until Goodall and these other women moved into the field. And as they moved in, and they did exactly what Leakey had thought they hoped they would do, they looked at this with fresh eyes and reported what they actually saw, they found that there was actually a kind of matriarchal culture here that all that famous you know, chest-beating King Kong stuff that the, that the males are doing is largely irrelevant to the structure um, of chimp and it turns out also gorilla society. Um, and that in fact, uh, and later studies have confirmed these findings that one of the things the females are doing when the guys are off banging their chests and fighting each other is they're having sex. They're having a lot of sex with other females, with other males, with non-dominant males. And cheap DNA tests have proved that actually the dominant males don't father anything like as many of the apes as they would like to think, or the researchers assumed. And so male aggression seems much less important to this story than had been assumed. And one of the things that becomes interesting is that apes, the male apes are described by early researchers in terms of a kind of Machiavellian intelligence, a human-like ability to uh, manipulate other apes into doing their bidding, to manage society, and, and the politics of ape societies is talked about quite explicitly by researchers. And what the women found was that 
When you look at foraging strategies among females, for, exact, uh, for example, and the way that they actually trade food for peace and quiet uh, in the social group, they are just as cunning, just as careful. They're resource maximizers. They have strategies to maximize their reproductive fitness, which is you know, the name of Darwin's game, exactly like the males do. And nobody had noticed because nobody had looked before. So the whole notion of what apes are like changed very dramatically as a result of um, these women. And the public culture of apes changes, the way we see them, the way they're depicted. Now, all three of these women are kind of partly sponsored by National Geographic. They get a huge amount of publicity in the magazine and endless TV specials. You can find all of these on YouTube. The, the early Goodall ones are particularly fascinating. The, you know, the fact that uh, you see her, it's almost like a scene from, if you saw the Paddington movie, the white hunter in the jungle, all alone, and you see him marching along, and there's like 32 native people carrying his sp supplies, and his grandfather clock, and his grand piano, and so on. And in these natural nature documentaries from the 60s, you see Jane Goodall with half a dozen Africans who cook for her and put up the tent and so on, and there she's alone in the wilderness, according to their voiceover. But anyway, so they're really fascinating documentaries to watch. But I want to talk a little bit about Brutti Galdikas, who's, as I said, less well-known. She worked with orangutans, and she became particularly interested in trying to rehabilitate orphaned orangs, usually because of poaching, uh, raising them and reintroducing them back into the wild. And she got really interested in work that was being done in the States at this time of teaching apes sign language, um, um, uh, American sign language. And uh, the most famous example of this is an ape called Washo, you've probably heard of, who learned a huge number of signs uh, and showed evidence of a remarkably sophisticated range of mental states of cognition that hadn't really been suspected. So Gary Shapiro, who's one of the people who helped train Washo, was actually brought to Indonesia to train orangs. And Sugito, who's one of the orangs that um, Galdikas works with, was, was the first ape they tried to teach. And she explains in this National Geographic article that I've got here, she'd often regretted that I would never be able to talk to Sugito, so that I could examine how he perceived and interpreted the world. By teaching orangutan sign language in their native habitat, we might find out what was important to them rather than to us. So the language has always been offered as one of the great bridges between the human and the animal. This is the thing that really divides us from them. And there are very dramatic moments, as I say, in the apes movies where the apes speak, overturning that assumption. And you can see Galdicus picking at exactly that point. If only we could talk to them, if only we could understand. And that was the motivation behind this project. Unfortunately, this experiment, which started really well, did not turn out well. Um, when Sugito hit puberty, he started to identify Shapiro as a rival male uh, and became increasingly violent. He actually killed one or two of the other orangs uh, in the enclosure. And they had to take him and relocate him deep into the jungle where he was nowhere near any other orangs um, so that he could just live on his own, much as Rousseau imagined he should have done in the first place. Galdicus's comment on this is fascinating. Perhaps the biblical analogy was apt. Raised by a human mother and exposed to human culture, he had eaten of the tree of knowledge and lost his orangutan innocence. Uh, and that's a fascinating reflection on what it is that separates ape and human, I think. That notion of primeval innocence, Rousseau's notion, is still kind of there in the modern primatologist. And that learning to be like us, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about the Planet of the Apes movies is the apes are often at their most violent and most horrible when they are, forgive the pun, aping human behaviors, like slavery and so on. Uh, and so that the notion that you know, they don't know original sin, that's why they're better than us, is one of the things that Galdicas, I think, is, is offering us here. 
The other one of this group of primatologists I want to quickly talk about is this woman, Sarah Hardy. She did her first work in India working on Langers, um, Hanuman Langers, uh, and she becomes very well-known anthropologist. Uh, she wrote this amazing book, The Woman That Never Evolved, about uh, the roles of females in social structures and apes, which set, you know, uh, pulled together a lot of the research that I've been talking about and reframed it in very interesting ways. Um, and the sophistication of female primate behavior, she's one of the people who really convinced the world about that. But one of her most recent books, which I want to just talk about briefly here, is this one, Mothers and Others, The Evolutionary Origins of Mutual Understanding. And this book starts with a real kind of sci-fi scene, something that might have come right out of Planet of the Apes. She imagines a 747 full of chimps. You put the chimps on in Africa, and you set off for the USA, and they land, and you open the plane, and what would you find? Well, she said, basically, you'd find bits of chimp, detached ears, limbs. They would kill each other. There is no way that a group of any apes could manage being confined in a small cylinder with hundreds of other um, creatures to whom they were not related, to whom they had no family bond, no social structure, no history. But we can do that. And she talks quite movingly about the fact that we have this instinctive understanding of other people's states of mind that lets us deal. So, you know, she said, you know, the young man who's just hit me with his backpack as he was trying to stir it, I understand he didn't do it on purpose, so I don't lash out at him. A chimp would, would, would lash out. Uh, and, and the fact that we can read other people's minds is one of the things that she finds really distinctive and interesting about human beings. Now, it's a super complicated, rich, interesting book. I mean, not hard to read, but just there's a lot in it. I recommend it really highly. I'm just going to summarize a couple of key points at the risk of oversimplifying. Humans are basically born prematurely uh, compared with all the other apes. And the reason is because we have preposterously large heads. And if we were allowed to stay in the uterus any longer, we'd never get out at all, basically. So we have to be born very prematurely. And we are really, really helpless compared with other apes when we're first born. One of the things that's really fascinating is that um, baby apes, and you see this very clearly if you look at baby chimps, look much more human than adult apes do. The jaw doesn't jut forward, they don't have big canines, they have a flat face with big round eyes, they look more human. And one of the things that has happened in human evolution is we've remained infant apes. The process is technically known as neoteny, but we've retained many juvenile features as adults, including a disproportionately large head relative to the rest of our body. That's done us some favours, but it's made it very difficult for us to survive as newborns and for our early ancestors really hard. And Hardy's thesis basically is that the only way uh, those ancestors could have survived is through cooperative parenting. It would have taken the whole social group to care for that infant and look after it because they were so vulnerable. And particularly what it would have required of those infants is that ability to mind read. You've got to judge the intentions of all those adults, many of whom you're not related to, which ones are going to feed you and take care of you, which ones might hurt you, how do you tell one from the other? Those skills would become crucial. So, and she argues that's really the origins of human empathy, of that extraordinary ability to read other minds. And there are lots of things that we used to think only we could do, which the apes have caught up with. They can make tools, they don't just use them, they make them, uh, they hunt in packs, uh, they can sign, and all kinds of things that we didn't think they could do. But the empathy gap still remains quite a big difference, uh, and very different, very different kinds of behaviors that we see in ape groups as a result. So this seems to be offering a, a very different story about human evolution. Empathy is is it. It's what makes us human, is, is a very oversimplified version of what Hardy's arguing here. Um, so who's right? 
Um, do the opening scenes of 2001 give us a realistic picture? Is that what it was like being in Australopithecine several million years ago? Was it, you know, life was nasty, brutish, and short, and so were we, uh, and it was killing one another and animals, making weapons rather than tools in general that made us human, that put us on the road, the, the evolutionary odyssey, which Kubrick's title refers to? Or, or was Rousseau right? Uh, which I think is one of the ways you might read what the female primatologists like Hardy are saying, that there is, um, you know, there's an angel there in our ape ancestry, there's a good side to us, uh, and that those early qualities come through in our evolutionary history, that, that the ape is, remains a model of a creature that doesn't enslave other members of its species, and so forth. And it, it's, it's really interesting to think about gorillas now, because of Diane Fossey in particular, but we've all seen hundreds of hours of great footage of gorillas and orangs and chimps. And when we think of gorillas now, I suspect most of us recognize we are a much bigger threat to them than they could possibly be to us. Which, as an aside, that's why all the remakes of King Kong are pants. I mean, it's not just that Peter Jackson thinks all films have to be eight hours long. It's also that we're just not scared of gorillas anymore. And so that initial shock, the extraordinary pathos of, oh my God, the monster is gentle, we don't get it anymore. But that's just an aside. Let me finish with Aldous Huxley. Um, he attacks Rousseau, as you would, for being anti-scientific, not the Rousseau they claim to be, but there we go. Mr. Huxley says this, the doctrine of original sin is scientifically much truer than the doctrine of natural reasonableness and virtue. Original sin, in the shape of antisocial tendencies inherited from our animal ancestors, is a familiar and observable fact. Primitively and in a state of nature, human beings were not, as the 18th century philosopher supposed, wise and virtuous, they were apes. But of course, when Huxley says they were apes, he's thinking about King Kong. I mean, this statement was made just a few years before King Kong came out. He's thinking about that kind of ape. I think in the first, in, you know, the 21st century, most of us are going to agree that our ancestors were apes. The question has become kind of what sort of apes were they? Were they aggressive carnivores? Were they peaceful collaborators? By what kinds of process, by what kinds of behaviors and interactions did they evolve into early hominids and then eventually into people vaguely like us? One of the more recent science fiction titles that deals with this, and for once I'm not going to spoil it for you, I'm just going to tell you to go away and read it, okay? Paul Cawley's novel White Devils, an amazing book. It's a kind of retelling of Heart of Darkness in the sense that it's set in a near future Africa which has been utterly devastated by various bioengineered plagues and so on, uh, and is now basically is being run by multinationals. And one of the many things I like about this book is the multinationals endlessly go around saying how very concerned about the environment they are as they take over entire countries and run them for profit. Um, but one of the things that's going on here is the genetic engineers have been trying to recreate Australopithecines. They've used all their genetic engineering to find the answer. What were they like? You have to read the book to find out. So, April Angel, this is where we, we kind of came in and where I'd like to leave this. The question of who is this we... Uh, and how does the ape tell us what we're like? How do they become a mirror in which we might see ourselves and think about what we're like, how are we different to them, and so on? What I've tried to show is that it changes very often. And one of the things it changes is because of the history of science, because of the kinds of science that's being done at a time. I hate to break this to you, history of science in my day job, that's what I do, so of course I'm going to look there for answers. But what I think is interesting about these films and these stories and so on is that most of us don't learn our science from reading the scientists. We get it through general culture, through the movies, through the cartoons, through the novels, and so on. And of course, that also, you know, the, the scientists read the same 
books and movies, go to the same movies and so on, it shapes their expectations as well. It's interesting about Lewis Leakey wanting women who weren't trained in the field so that they would see things anew. So we're all steeped in the same culture. We all pick up the same ideas, and they all circulate in our heads when we try to think about it. And recognizing where those assumptions come from may be one of the things science fiction can do for us and get us off the narrow, narrow footpath of what everybody is thinking and doing, whoever everybody happens to be this week. Thank you very much for listening. the lowland gorilla John Daniel, who lived in the Gloucestershire village Uli, 1917 to 1922. I'm not. That was an easy one. I have to <laughs> I, I, I would like to know more, though. When I, when I saw this question come in, I did a quick Google, and apparently mm-hmm. it was raised as a human. Yeah. Like, um, it's just an interesting I mean, thing at that time. The example of Sugita, who I used, the orang, who's taught sign language, there is actually quite a long tradition of, of apes being raised with human families and encouraged to act in more human ways and so on. Um, and they almost always, those things almost always go wrong at puberty, as, as so much does. Um, where, in particular, the apes tend to start seeking what the literature refers to as inappropriate sexual partners, meaning humans. But as I say, family show, we won't go into that in detail. But I, I would like to know more, but I don't know that case. I was wondering, um, you don't mention Tarzan. Um, in your analysis. Is there a reason for that? It's kind of an interesting colonial yeah. history view of... It, 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 there was a section on Tarzan that was in an earlier draft and then came out again. There's a great moment in Tarzan's first love, which I think is a sweet story. Um, <laughs> why does Tarzan have to make weapons? It actually comes up in the story because he doesn't have teeth and claws like the other monkeys, apes, so he's got to make, which I thought Robert Audrey would have loved that. But n- mostly, I just think so much has been written about Tarzan, I don't think I had anything at all to say on it that hadn't been said before, mm-hmm. except there was a great recent cartoon in the New Yorker of, of the chimps all saying to Tarzan, wait a minute, if we raised you, where did you learn to shave? <laughs> it was kind of really an important question that needs answering, but I don't know the answer. <laughs> Hi, uh, <clears throat> I was wondering um, what you think of um, one of the ideas that was in uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. It didn't make the final cut of the film, that of the uh, human-ape hybrid child. Uh, apparently it went against modern sensibilities at the time. What, why do you think uh, that was? Yeah, I mean, that, that strongly suggests to me that the, um, that the, you know, the fear of miscegenation is one of the things that, that hovers around this in a very uneasy way. And in the 19th century, there were plenty of people willing to claim that uh, Africans were indeed a different species um, to to Europeans, uh, and that a sterility barrier between two two species is one of the ways you define a species. So if you could procreate, as every variety of human being obviously can, that fatally undermines the argument that we're different species. But well into the 20th century, I found people arguing that... um, People of African descent have a different chromosome number than white people, and that's why uh, the results of those um, interbreedings are always uh, less intelligent and feeble and less healthy. And, uh, people absolutely refusing to see the evidence before their eyes, but you know the preconceptions are a very powerful thing. But I do think that that, that is one of the areas which, as I said, I re- started writing about at several points because one of the things Deshayu says, for example, is that gorillas lurk in trees, they wait for African women to go underneath, they snatch them, carry them off into the jungle and have their wicked way with them. And then he says, of course, uh, you know, that's what the credulous Africans believe, it's not true at all. But I've told you that salacious story to boost sales anyway. Um, And that kind of story actually recurs again and again and again. 
uh, one of the most vile bits of Victorian racism I've come across is the claim that Africans are actually the product of interracial um, sex between or sex between apes and humans, and the result of Africans who are more degenerate than either apes or humans because of the violation of the natural species map. That's a very, very rare view, thank God. Um, but it was a view. And so I think that, that uh, the idea that the apes and the, and the humans might interbreed touches very closely on that thing, which is a real phobia, more in the USA, I think, e even than in other um, uh, white-dominated countries, and particularly because of the legacy of slavery uh, is something that you know, is still a source of enormous fear. There's a um, Chester Himes, the um, Harlem Renaissance writer, in his first book, which is a kind of realist novel about a, a, an African-American shipyard worker during the war, uh, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, it's called. Um, there's an extraordinary scene where the, um, I think it's called Joe, the, the, the worker, uh, wants to talk to one of the white women who works there just to say hi. He goes up to her and he says she flinched and she backed away from me like I was King Kong. And the image of the ape as the kind of embodiment of a dangerous and aggressive black sexuality is one of the many things that's kind of bubbling away below the surface in these stories, I think. Yes, just <clears throat> connecting with what you said, I might be out by decades, but the kiss between Uhura and Captain Kirk, and then the kiss between Galen and the female, human female, were they about the same time? Mm, I they, both they, they must be very They were both very together. contentious, mm, weren't mm, they? They were. Yeah. yeah. This is every Star Trek fans, you know, claim that they're not just wasting their time watching Star Trek is that that was the first TV show on American television that showed an interracial kiss. My favorite Uhura story, which I bet you know, but maybe others don't, is that uh, not long after the show first aired and she was thinking, it's kind of a dead end job here. I don't think I want to be in this boys own show forever. Uh, she was at a National Association for the Advancement of Colored People's uh, National Congress, the big civil rights organization. And somebody said, oh, Lieutenant Uhura, oh, there's somebody here who really wants to meet you. And she's like, oh God, another fanboy, whatever. She's waiting, overcomes Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and she said, you know, I'm thinking I might quit the show. And he said, don't. It is so important to see every week on television those white people treating you with respect. It means so much. And, and she, she stuck with it for that reason, which I'm, I think is an amazing, amazing story. But yeah, there is something about the interracial kiss, the interspecies kiss. It's one of my favorite lines in the first film when Tom Heston asks for, for the ape for a kiss. And she says, I would, but you're so ugly. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, I mean, I wouldn't kiss Tom Heston, so I can see her point. But. <laughs> I think orangs are an interesting case because doesn't orangutan mean something like man of the woods or something? Yeah. And I, I did read somewhere, I, I, I don't know if it's true, that there was a belief that actually they could talk but they chose not to because then men would get them to do things. Yes, yes, this is widely reported by, uh, by Dutch explorers in the um, 18th century and we hear the same story from explorers in Africa as well that actually the apes can talk perfectly well but they're too smart to do so because they know they'd be enslaved if they revealed how intelligent they were. And again, there's a fascinating, in the, the first of the Plants of the Apes films when the apes come back in time, they hide the fact they can speak at first. And the humans are like, who are these apes in this spaceship who wear clothes? And they subject them to various intelligence tests. And one of the ones they do is one that real apes were put through routinely at the time. A banana is hung from the ceiling out of reach and a pile of boxes are put on the ground and the ape has to figure out how to make a staircase. And of course, the, the chimp um, leader in the film, she just goes, bang, 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 walks up there and just stands there. 
And the male human scientist says to his female assistant, why doesn't she take the banana? And she turns and says, because I hate bananas. <laughs> so hiding the fact you can speak has its advantages, and that story is true. But yes, you're absolutely right, orangutan means man of the woods, and the indigenous people refer to themselves as orangpikin um, to separate. So they're both men, but men of the villages, men of the towns, men of the woods. So they see that kinship very closely, and most um, varieties of human beings have seen it. It kind of stares you in the face, so to speak, whenever you see large apes. Um, yeah. Okay, well, it's, it is 7 o'clock now, so I think we better draw this to a close and thank Professor Enderby one more time. Thank you so much. Thank you.